What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes. Something amazing's happened. Go on, tell me. I found Jason Furman's phone number. No so way. We should ring him and see if we, we can should. buy some dog equipment off him. We've got to put this to rest once and for all. There's so many people harassing me about his website and you. So, yeah, let's ring this idiot. Ring him up. Okay, hang on a sec. It's ringing. I'm excited. Hello. Hey, Jason. Yes, Patricia. <laughs> <laughs> I'm ringing to uh, try and buy some dog equipment off you. Yeah, what do you want? I don't know, some tugs, some leashes, some some of that kind of stuff. Can I do that over the phone? No. Okay. Why let's would get, you do it over the phone? Mate, let's get down to the nitty-gritty in the business here. Have you got a website or not? Of course. What? Yeah, of course. I just didn't want to tell you buggers about it. You're an idiot. <laughs> so <laughs> please tell us, what is your website? It is www.com. Einzweck.com, E-I-N-Z-W-E-C-K.com. You heard it here, folks. Einzweckdogquip.com, where you can buy oh all God, your I dog training equipment. It. Head over there right now, purchase yourself some tugs, leashes. What else do you sell, Jason? Uh, plenty of HS products, uh, mm-hmm. dog pull equipment, fireball mills, anything any normal dog person would want. Wonderful. No head holders. No, no <laughs> That's it. Hey, Cut Jason. It yes, Glenn. You're still a bullfed. Bye. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio today by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And joining us on the phone, all the way from Virginia, we have Melanie Benware. Welcome to the show, Melanie. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. Melanie, you're the current president of the IACP. That is correct. And we wanted to get you on here to talk about the IACP, but as we were just discussing as we're kind of warming up, is we actually don't know each other at all. It's the first time we've ever spoken. So let's do- Let's let's, get a little dossier on you. Let's find out about you and your history with dogs and how you came to be where you are today. So I've been professionally working with dogs for almost 20 years now. Um, My husband and I, before we were married, were living out in St. Louis. He was, I dropped out of college. He was finishing his master's and we had an obnoxious, unruly, we actually already at 19 had a pack of three dogs, but one of them was just a husky that just three trainers quit on us that vet wanted him on puppy Prozac and I just knew there had to be a better way. And I started working with the trainer partway through it. She told me I needed to become a dog trainer. Right. How long ago was that when the Prozac was suggested for you? Uh, 19 years ago. Wow. Geez, it started early in America. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'll admit, because I was, I mean, I was young, college age that I didn't know any better. It was back when, you know, I just, the vet said, you should do it. You should do it. Mm -hmm. We tried it for a short period of time and he just became a zombie and it wasn't what I wanted for a dog. And it's not what I would think he would want for himself. So I took him off the meds and just started working with a trainer. And 
I was lucky enough to be living in the St. Louis area at the time. And there's a dog training school in High Ridge, Missouri called the Tom Rowe School. Mm -hmm. So I worked full time, seven days a week for a year to save up to go working full time at a credit union. And then I worked under a trainer at a kennel outside of St. Louis and then went to the school, graduated, and then we moved to Richmond, Virginia, which is where we're currently living. So I could start up a training program for an incredibly large kennel here in the United States. Yeah, Tom Rose was yeah. quite well known in Australia 20 odd years ago because uh, he, right. he used to do video work back then when it was very conceptual. It was unique. Not many people had DVDs out back then. So people like Stuart right. Hilliard, Tom Rose, there were quite a few people out there that were bringing VHS tapes out that we were watching and getting material off. And I think plus back then, one of my mentors, a guy called Boyd, he went over to Tom's school and actually trained with him for about a week. So he actually liked what Tom was doing. Like he had footprints on the ground that he showed people how to stand and where to put their feet. So, you know, he said it's a very unique concept because rather than people flailing all over the place when they're learning how to catch dogs or handle dogs, Tom had a system in place where he'd just say, okay, stand like this, put your feet here so people could walk along the path that he created. And he said, it's something to say, develop the system yourself or rather than take weeks and weeks and weeks to learn how to put your feet, he actually had it all listed out on the ground. I thought that was quite a unique concept. It was, and it was, you know, the school, which has been around for a long time, it was one of a few at the time when I went and it was an intense program. Like I knew going into it, I just wanted to work with pet dogs. Mm-hmm. But to graduate, you had to do everything, tracking, narcotics detection, personal protection was optional, but I did do a little bit of that, but just, it wasn't for me. Competitive obedience, agility, behavior modification, like it it was intense, but it, and then I think afterwards, the biggest part for me was coming out and then taking what I learned and morphing it and putting my hands on as many dogs as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. So how, how long is that course or was that course? Oh, right. Yeah. Cause it has changed a lot since I went, um, when I went, it was almost six months right? Okay, and cool. about 70 hours a week. Yeah. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's a full immersion. <laughs> you, you live on site there or something. Yeah. So we were living in St. Louis at the time anyway. So I just commuted every day, but I'm the rarity. Most people, yeah, they live in the dorms on campus and right. you're just eating, breathing dog training. Cool. I reckon that's a good way to do it. Yeah. There isn't really anywhere in Australia that does that sort of thing that certainly not Not like that that. intensity and for that Mm. duration. I think it's a really good way if you can afford the time, right, to get that immersion. And I think Mike Ellis is doing that similar sort of program. Yeah. Oh, there's lots of them in the States, but just Mm. here there's not. Not here. Yeah. No, we have loads more now in the States than there were, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah. So you did that, the six month course there, or roughly six months, and then you moved to Virginia Mm. and started up your own business there? I actually started working for a company. There's a kennel here in the area that's been in business for almost 50 years. The facility I worked at could house upwards of 400 dogs. Wow. And now they have two locations that that are both about the same size, but they didn't have a training program. And so I got to start the training program myself and figure out what I wanted, what I didn't want. So almost 20 years in, and I've never worked a weekend. (laughs) I'm one of the Rare dog trainers that has never worked a weekend. I set up my program, so I worked Monday through Fridays, and that's what I'm still doing. I run my own business now, but I'm still doing Monday through Friday. Mm-hmm. And so at that kennel, you established the, the program for board and trains, or was it group classes, or what did that look like? Um, predominantly, we did board and train, and then I also modified, and Tyler's doing it now too, is a day program. Right. So 
Monday through Friday, but the people get to take their dogs home at night. Mm-hmm. So all the benefits of a board and train, but you know. So it's like daycare, daycare and train. Exactly. Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. We do similar programs as well where we have daycare and train at our facilities here in Australia. Right. How did you find when you implemented that sort of the success rate versus when you keep the dog? Did you find that people are sort of undoing a lot of your work overnight or it's not that noticeable? Um, you know, the first week I would tell people, because even with my board and train programs, they were only Monday through Friday. So I did take home lessons with the parents each Friday anyway. Right. And obviously the dog each weekend would backslide, right? Is It's, it's mm-hmm. going to happen. But at least then I got progress reports on Monday to say, okay, this is what we did well. This is what we're struggling with. So I knew better where to pick up for the next week. Mm-hmm. The day program, the only what I saw as the biggest difficulty was they wanted what do we do tonight? What do we do tonight? In the first week, I just sent them home with the dog and said, don't change anything. Mm-hmm. And that was the hardest for people is to not start to change the first day their dog went through training. Mm. Well, when you get a bright new shiny toy home, you want to unbox it and start playing with it straight <laughs> yeah. away. Yeah. Yeah. So I know what um, I'm like. We- when we got the new panel that we're recording off, I had, I ripped it out <laughs> of the box and I was so excited and I was pressing buttons all over the place. I had no idea what I was doing. So yeah, I know, look, I know the excitement people get with their dogs and how over-enthusiastic they are. And that's a problem right. unto itself. It's a problem for a lot of trainers because they get so enthusiastic that they start doing burnout exercises with the dog. And right. then the dog starts to see any sort of obedience is becoming aversive because it's going, well, now you've pushed me over my threshold. I don't enjoy this anymore. Right. And that was the big thing is explaining that to owners. I mean, like, look, they just had a really big day today. Like, let them just go home and, and meditate. Mm. <laughs> yeah, just let them just relax. But it was really successful. Um, we also then started, you know, I was lucky enough that my boss did let me, I, because the program was so successful, is if I came up with a wild idea, he was like, okay, go with it. So we did field trips where we actually had a bus company here that would let us take dogs on the bus for training graduates. And we'd go to vineyards, we'd go to breweries. Now I do stand-up paddle boarding too, where we take training graduates and do stuff like that. So he really let us just kind of have fun with it, um, which engaged the owners more. It gave them something they, a reason to keep up with the training Mm -hmm. is that if I keep up with the training, I can do one of these brewery trips and things like that. So it was, it was neat. How long is that program? It just depended on what the owner was looking for. So anywhere from three weeks to six weeks, depending Mm -hmm. on if it's, is it just basic puppy training? Is it, you know, off leash training? Is there behavior modification that has to go into place? And a lot of people came back because it was such a big resort because I'd have dogs just over the Christmas holiday that they you know, the dog would be doing great in training, but they'd be like, oh, you know, he's always so much better when he comes back from you. So do another week of training. Yeah. So. Top up training. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. And so your business at the moment, what's it, what's it called? Kindred Canine Training and Behavior Modification. Cool. And that's based in Virginia. Yes. I do not have a facility. So I think we're going on four and a half years ago, almost five. My husband's job relocated us to Ireland uh-huh. and I was unable to work while I was there. So I did a bit of volunteering at the Dublin SPCA and then was doing some free training on the side just because I didn't, we didn't know if I was going to be there for three years. Was I going to be there for five? And I didn't want to lose my touch. I didn't want to not have my hands on dogs and be working with them and working with clients. And so there I just did in home, like I just met people in their home. And I think that's where it really clicked for me, what I wanted to do for my business when I got back. So I now do a program, it's called homeschool. And Monday through Friday, 
I am in people's homes. So it's just like a boarding program or day program. Only I come to the person's house five days a week. Okay. And I meet with the client and they're not home. Most of them aren't homes. I have garage codes or key codes or keys to their houses. And Monday through Thursday, I don't see the owners. I just work with the dog. And then Friday we do our lessons just like I was before. And they practice with the dog over the weekend. And it has been, I'll say life-changing as far as the results that I'm getting in training because uh-huh. the dogs are actually working in their home environment, but with the structure of a five-day five day a week board and train program. Yeah. And so then you're traveling around to all the different homes doing multiple dogs per day. You just take the dog. You don't engage with people. I, like, I love that idea. I think that's really cool. Yeah. It's worked really nice. And it was one of the things while living in Ireland that I came to appreciate was a work-life balance. And it was something I did not have before. Uh-huh. Melanie, um, just on that, your experience in Ireland, what was the culture like with you know the, the population there with dogs compared to your life in America with dogs? <laughs> I'm going to say better is, you know, one is the weather in Ireland isn't great, right? Is mm. it's, it's rainy. It's, you know, now with that being said is, I mean, a heat wave there is 75 degrees. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, I can at least work dogs year round and you don't get like today where I'm sitting in 97 degrees and a 10 minute walk is about all the dogs can get. So I'm having to do all the training indoors. So there is some perks to the cooler weather, but you see people walk their dogs every day, rain or shine. They're more engaged with their dog, but not spoiling them. I think the way that we do here in the U S but I will say is it, it has shifted both what I feel in the UK from, from my experience, both in the UK and in Ireland, they're starting to shift more towards an American style of living with their pets. Mm-hmm. And we're starting to, and we were starting to see more behavioral problems like we are in the United States versus, you know, obviously I took advantage of living in Europe and traveled all over and on the continent, you didn't see as many behavioral issues mm-hmm. because I think they were sticking to the way they'd been raising dogs for ages. But I personally found that the more they became to Americanize their programs and their lives, the more unbalanced the dogs were becoming. I don't think it's so much that it's an Americanism. I think a lot of the time it's more anthropomorphism. And I think that's the trend that I generally see with people that when they start thinking they have to have this, the whole fur baby thing, and they have to be the the pet mummy and daddy, it's almost like, I'm not trying to insult people, because I know people right. love their pets and I mean, I love my pets too and they're part of my family, but there's a point of ridiculousness where we just overdo it. And when people lose that sort of rural connection with their dogs, that they still respect them, but they still understand that, you know, there's a rural component to having a dog as well. They seem to unintentionally give their dog a better lifestyle as to where we're spoiling them to a point of ridiculous, where we're just overfeeding them. I'm one of those people that thinks that dogs can be overloved to a point yeah. of ridiculousness. And I just don't, I don't think it's a good lifestyle for the dogs. Dogs are very adaptive as we all know, but I mean, I just think it gets to a point of being a little bit too crazy and it does more harm than it does good. Well, and what I try to explain to my clients too is because it's hard when you go into someone's home and you tell them, <laughs> you have to gently tell them that they are over loving their dog. And a lot of the behavior problems are because of that. And so I think the thing that has always stuck home with my clients is that I tell them that treating them like a little human being in a fur coat is doing them a huge injustice. And the fact that one of the best things about a dog 
is that they're not human. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I agree. They don't have all of our flaws. And you start putting that type of pressure on them, and it's not fair. Yeah, it doesn't I find allow that. them to live the life they should. Yeah, I find that for sure. When That's how you have to frame that conversation is like, I know you think that you're helping, but you're actually the source of this stress. And it's because you're, you're overwhelming your dog. You're giving your dog too much responsibility and, and too much like freedom is responsibility. And they're usually then creating these anxiety issues. We spoke about it one time before, like I in my area, I live, you know, I live and work in the city of, of Sydney and mm. we get a lot of separation anxiety cases. And largely it's because people have painted the picture to the dog that you're in control of everything in this home and, and the dog is, the dog can demand and get anything it wants. It's not, it's not an illusion of control. It really is control. Mm. But what the dog can't control is that you have to go to work every day. Right. And, and, and until people have become a recluse to the point where they no longer leave the house to appease their dog. And I've got those clients, like I'm sure you've seen them as well. Yeah. They're already highly medicated themselves because they think, Oh my God, I'm trapped in a lifestyle where I have yeah. to serve my dog. Otherwise I'm a bad pet parent. Yeah. So then I, right. We see, I see a fair bit of it. Of the dog has not got a separation anxiety. What he has is an anxiety around the idea that he controls you in every way except this one. And now he's, you know, concerned about that, and that's what leads to all this anxiety. It's just some structure, and hey, presto, your dog's the, the problem's fixed. Right. We do see that a lot. <laughs> and so it's it, it's kind of a worldwide phenomenon, right? But it's certainly in more more densely populated areas. Well, I right. think the closer you live to populated cities, the more crazy people tend to get. <laughs> it, it takes a little bit of crazy to be living in a city, I think. Yeah, I <laughs> Which agree. I, I do, but I think you have to to adapt to that and thrive. It does. It takes a healthy dose of crazy. Mm. Hey, I live, I live smack bang in the, in the city. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so you ended up in Ireland for three years, was it? Yeah, a little over three, yeah. And you couldn't work there because that was like a work visa type thing, right? Correct. So um, as I'm sure you know, is agriculture is big in Ireland and anything working with animals is considered agriculture and that is protected. That's a special visa that you need. And so I just, but I could volunteer and it also let me work with people. One, to see a different way of rescue being done. The Dublin SPCA is a positive only training facility. Mm -hmm. So getting in there and working with dogs and being able, I mean, they knew who I was and what I did and everything, but they learned, I didn't tell them at first. I just went in there to be a kennel worker Mm -hmm. and clean up after the dogs. And by the time they got to know me and then they learned about me, I wasn't big, bad and scary. And so it, it allowed them a different perspective to what they were being taught. And not everybody agreed with it, but it was a good experience, I think, on both sides. Is that isn't that terrible, were- Melanie? That you're guilty until proven innocent, and you you have the presence of a serial killer when you come into some of these organisations, and then when people, like you said, when people actually get to know you and your personality and see how much you actually do care, people are like, "Oh, you're not the image that I conjured when I first started hearing about you. Uh, you actually right. care about dogs just as equally as we do." Look, we've complained about that sort of thing on the show and in many groups that we're actually involved in for far too long now. It just seems that it's still such a shame that that mentality exists and, and that type of persona exists about us that we're still so divided. Yet, I think it's nice to see that there are pockets of people slowly coming together. For instance, Pat did a 
podcast with a, a gentleman called Nick Benger from the UK, and he's quite positive only focused, but he still is suggestive to thinking and listening to people with different perspectives. And that's nice to see. I'm, I'm glad to know that there are pockets of people like that existing in the world that are trying to bridge the gap between us and starting to say, let's not be so overwhelmed and focus on shooting each other through the border, but trying to understand each other and be a little bit more cooperative for the sake of the dogs. Well, and that I think that's what actually drew me to the IACP so many years ago was that it was the only group. When I was looking for an organization to join, it, it appeared to me to be the only one that was willing to bring people in from both sides that didn't want to be just a one-sided voice. It wanted to be the voice of the dogs. It wanted to be that as long as you are going to be working for the betterment of your clients and your clients' dogs and training humanely, then we don't care what tool you use. Let's just help dogs. And and that really resonated with me. And um, the organization hasn't yet me, let me down yet when it comes to what I thought it was. So when did you first join the ISCP? Oh, goodness. Uh, 2006 or 2007? Oh, okay. Like a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look exactly, but it's, it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, cool. Hey, I want, to, I want to talk about the ISCP, but I also want to hear, so the Husky, what happened there? He trained out beautifully. I mean, he was off-leash dog. He was my hiking partner. He lived till he was almost 12 years old, defying... He got cancer when he was 11, and the vets told us we had two weeks. Mm-hmm. And he was—he must have heard that and was stubborn and said, <laughs> nope, I'm going to make it another year. And he did. But he ended up being, I mean, he was a husky, right? A, a he, stubborn he husky? No way. Yeah, he's a mind of his own, but off-leash reliable. We lived in the country with 10 acres. He just, he ended up being a wonderful dog. Perfect. For a husky. <laughs> and, and how did you train him? What was the the method that got through to your dog? How did you fix the problems? He was actually my first full experience with an e-collar. Yep. That was what got through to him is, um, and we're not talking like high levels or anything like that. It was just, I could touch him from a distance Mm. and that's all it took for him is as soon as he realized that his four legs and speed wasn't a match, he turned out to be a beautiful dog. Like it, 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 and it unleashed so much freedom for him to be able to go hiking in the Blue Ridge Mountains for 15 miles. I mean, it just gave him the life that he needed. I think it was the thing because I've been using e-collars, not on every dog, but since then. And that was what absolutely was a light switch for me, that this tool had such great potential. Yeah, that's an interesting one, especially with a Husky. I sort of harp on to people a lot that that e-collar really at its highest purpose is a reinforcer of commands and therefore like a tactile command. Mm. And I think for a dog, you know, we always, for dogs that we know the breed of, and especially if he came from, you know, working pedigree or something like that, you have to look at the genetic selection of that dog and they're not really designed to take verbal commands. They're always receiving a tactile command, like in the original purpose and pulling a sled mm. there, they got the, they got the sled on, they get feedback via that, via the harness. They get, they get feedback on what you want for them to do. And so that, you know, he, him and his ancestors were not selected for their ability to take verbal direction and that kind of thing. Right. Mm. So I think a lot of those type dogs, that feedback, that tactile command that they can be touched 
and it's you know as as I've said it a thousand times on this show is that that e collar has the function you give it at, at the low level stuff. It it, it doesn't it, it has the function that you give it, and if you can tell the dog this means that it's a reinforcer of commands or it is the command itself or however you know whatever technique you're using. It can be a right. life-changing tool for a lot of dogs that are go ah like I, I I interpret that as a signal for action. Yeah, and it, and it was just I don't know. We went from a dog that was supposed to be on Prozac, right, to then a dog who had a happy sense of freedom. He was mm-hmm. able to be a husky, but with control. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And it it gave me the ability for clients when they're like, oh no, I have a sight hound, they can't possibly be off leash. Well, let's talk about that. <laughs> Because <laughs> um, I also have a sighthound who is awfully strained, so it's it's just that was a light bulb moment for me is just seeing him thrive, um, and that because I had been taught, you know, even though like before I went to the Tom Rowe School, is I, I did think that e collars were, you know, tough and they were only for the hardest dogs and high levels, and it was just what I was told. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's exactly right. I mean, that's the level of education that people have. And that's the persona that is out there in the public is that e-collars make dogs lie on the ground and, you know, like they have fits when they're on the ground shaking yes. and convulsing from, from the seizures. pair of yeah, seizures from the, the e-collar. And that, that is all – that's just a story. Like it's a, it's a folk story that somebody put out there. And, I mean, we know that it doesn't matter what method you use for training. Everything can be linked back to some form of abuse if the person is abusive. But, I mean, on the other side of the spectrum, there's tens of thousands of people out there successfully using e-collars that ha- love their dogs, that have a great relationship to their dogs. And as Pat said, they've got a, a, a wonderful way of being tactile to their dog. And you made mention of it before, that you can reach your dog from a distance. It's basically like being tapped by a finger and people saying, hey, right. you, you need to pay attention now. And it does come down to education. We all know this. I mean, we're all preachers of the same philosophy here. We're saying the same thing. The problem is, is that the story is still getting so convoluted out in public that people still think that e-collars need to be on dogs that need to be smashed. And yeah. and that that's a perception that really needs to be turned around. And I'm glad that there is organisations like the IACP and many of the supporting members and trainers out there who are really focused on showing people that there is another way and that these collars can be used on some of the softest and the most gentle dogs with some of the most profound and wonderful results that you could ever imagine in, in training philosophies. Yeah. And I think that's our job, right? As trainers is I think we need to give more power to our clients as far as feeling that they can promote the tool too. And I don't mean they should be using it on other people's dogs and that sort of thing, but that they need to not be hiding and not be ashamed that they're using it as they need to talk to their friends and to other people about how much freedom it's given their dogs, the way it's changed the life that they were living with their dog is Mm. we as dog trainers can do it all day long. But when the general public starts it, I think that's what that is going to be a big shift in the conversation is when we have every average everyday pet owners talking about how that tool has changed their life for the better. Yeah, I agree with that for sure. Yeah. I think we've got to stop being a culture of, of people that constantly apologize for everything. Um, I think that's the thing that's worrying me a lot at the moment is that we seem to have to apologize for everything, not just in dog training. It seems to be everything, you know, worrying about offending people all the time and apologizing for this and apologizing for that. And I agree, you know, there's, there's quite a few people now who are 
of that mindset where they're saying, let's stop hiding, let's stop apologizing, let's start educating. And I think that's a nice principle. I'm actually I'm actually proud to be a part of that movement where people I think it was Jerry Bradshaw who was on the show. You know, Jerry's quite a straight shooter and there's <laughs> it's good to see that there's a lot of people like Jerry out there, including yourself and many others in, involved in, in our thinking processes where we're saying we've got to start showing people the right way to do it. We've got to stop hiding from governments. We've got to start telling governments, look, we're the authority on this. You need to start taking a little bit of precedence from what we're doing and start looking at how it works. So it's nice to see. I know that Pat's part of the legislative committee on the ISCP. There's mm-hmm. there's quite a few very level-headed people on that committee that are, yes. are, are working yes, towards sir. educating people in a much better sense than what is currently out there in, in public perception. Well, and I think the other side of it too is that we, um, and it was discussed a little bit on the IACP Facebook group, is that we also have to start policing our own in a way. Yes. Is that I think for years it was we didn't want to say anything negative about an e-collar trainer because then we're lumping ourselves in with them. Whereas now I think it is even more important that when someone's out there doing it wrong, that we talk about it, that we say, no, that's not right. You are not doing this for the betterment of the dog. You're not taking the dog's well-being into account with those training methods. And I, and that's something that we're pushing as well. And we just, we need to encourage our members to, you know, I hate to say it, but if, if you see something, say something. Is there so much going on that's so good about e-collars out there, but all it takes is one trainer doing it wrong and that's the one that makes the news. That's the one that leads to legislation. Mm. Well, I think that most good organizations, what they do is that they get a panel of people together like you have and develop a set of standards and guidelines, which you're doing, and then they put it out there to people to say, this is the boundary that you can operate in. So right. this is this is from a panel of your peers who all agree this is the best method in how to use and operate any sort of training equipment and if you fall outside the guideline well you know we're going to speak to you and if you continue to do so well we won't represent you as part of the membership you're basically a maverick and you're just showing that you don't want to operate in a fair and ethical system which we're all developing together correct hey so melanie tell us a little bit about the path from joining the iacp you know entry member to president 10 years later Mm. It all started with the conference. I had been a member for a few years and then, what was it, eight or nine years ago, I can't remember, that they had Caesar Milan and it was in San Diego, California. Mm-hmm. And so um, that's what really got me interested in going to the conference was part of it was from a marketing standpoint is that if myself and the other trainer, Amanda Napomaseno, who was our secretary for a few years, um, as well as a board member, we were both working for the same facility. And um, we thought, gosh, if we could be the only trainers in Richmond with our picture with Caesar Milan, then <laughs> that's, worth, that's worth every bit of money that our, our boss will spend sending us to conference. And we pitched it to him. <laughs> he sent us and we and we've been going every year since. And so that was that year, then one in Florida. And then we were back in Hutto, Texas. And Amanda and I showed up early. We contacted Cindy and said, hey, put us to work tell us what to do. So we were just the gophers for that conference. Mm -hmm. Just anything they needed, we did. And so the next year was on the conference committee. And that was in Alexandria, Virginia. And 
I guess because I had worked so hard for two years, I, I proved my work is worth as far as being a volunteer that I wasn't just going to, I didn't want to be a, like I, I didn't want to be a board member so that I could expand my business or get my name out there. I wanted to work for the organization to better the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm a firm believer in if you're going to do something, you also need to leave it better than what you found it. And so that's always sort of been my goal. So I was a director for four years. And then last year I was up for um, reelection and I actually decided not to run, that I wanted to open it up for fresh blood is I think we've, we've had a lot of new board members and they're bringing so many good ideas and so much energy and thought from outside that I felt that I could, if I stayed on as president, that would still have me involved in the organization, but that my spot as a director was better served by letting someone new come in. Mm -hmm. And so far it's done really well. So yeah, I think it was just, I had a passion for the organization and I got in there and worked. Being a director isn't for the faint hearted. It is a lot of work. It is volunteering. There is no pay. But again, it's it's a passion for the organization and and seeing that it's something that our industry desperately needs. Yeah, I think we do desperately need it. We spoke about this with with Jerry again as well to bring him up. We do need a representative body, mm. uh, and we have it. Most definitely, we just need to steer people towards it. We have it. It's there. You, right. You're it. It's there. And there's there's so much fracturing because the dog community is huge, and the IACP is you know, International Association of Canine Professionals, right? So let's put that international to work. And that's what we've been pushing mm. it here in Australia. And and I think that, you know, the Australian membership over the last few years is really... Starting um, to blossom. Yeah, because yeah. I mean, that's yeah, right. So. And because we need representation and, and what the, it would be, it's silly to start another group. And that, that's the problem, I think, in so much of the dog stuff. There's so many different organizations. Splinter cells, yeah. Yeah, that it, mm. it's madness. Like, even if you don't agree 100% on it, on the mission of ISCP or any other group, like, if it's if you've got 80%, if it's there, you, why, why make another thing and have a bunch of small voices when what we really need is one great, big, powerful voice? Right, because there is strength in numbers. Yeah. And, you know, again, it's, I mean – even being the president is, it doesn't mean I always 100% agree with every decision that the organization makes or every step we've taken. But for the overall viewpoint and for the greater good, it's so much better to have larger numbers all working together than these tiny little groups. Yeah. And it has grown so much. And I mean, even just the conference, and we're going to be well over 500 this year. Wow. Which at that point, we could be surpassing these other organizations with their conferences. Mm-hmm. And part of that is, you know, the hard work of Cindy Graham and the conference committee and the directors of not just sticking to safe speakers. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, I mean that we're not just having speakers that agree with us. Yeah, I think that's a good point because, I mean, I was looking through the lineup and there's a there's a couple of interesting people coming to this year's one, which Pat and I are looking forward to interviewing. And I think it's great. I think it's great that we can, as I said before, that there is a quickening of this collaboration between us, that we're starting to talk to each other rather than standing between the divide and throwing rocks at each other, which has happened right. for such a long time. And, you know, like I have to take some blame in that. I've been part of that that process before where I have been a rock thrower and, you know, people have pointed out to me and they said, if you want healing to commence, if you want things to generate into a into a 
better substance of what you think is an ideal world, then you have to stop throwing rocks and start talking to people, you know, start mediating and start finding out where do we have a common goal? And we all agree our common goal is in the care and welfare of dogs and, you know, improving that communication gap between each other. I mean, I think that's paramount. Just to quickly backtrack a little bit on a point Pat said before, one of the things I think is really prevalent and, you know, hopefully uh, you guys start to see the benefit of this as well, is it really would be wonderful for the IACP to start really becoming international, to start planting offices in countries around the world and really starting, look, I know there's difficulties in doing that. I spoke to Tyler about that at another point in time, but really I think this is a benefit that we really do need to do is starting to generate satellite IACPs in Europe, in Australia, in as wide and far as we can possibly spread it so we can really start to up the membership levels and really start to up the influence that we have as a group of caring practitioners, I guess. Yes. No, and, and, and that's um, that's been a long road and it's definitely of one course. wholeheartedly agree with is that, you know, especially someone who, you know, I wasn't for long, but living overseas is seeing how dis- – and I was on the board, right? So I was still – even though I was – Living in Ireland, I was a director, so I was still very much part of the organization, and so I didn't feel as disconnected. But, you know, I got to talk. I hosted two workshops while I was over there, one with Jason Basconi and one with um, Nelson Hodges, and which was good. It was able to bring a little bit of the IACP over there. We had people come, you know, come to the workshops in Ireland from all over Europe and being able to talk. To most of them were members by the time um, Jason's workshop was over, everybody was a member, but that they do feel disconnected, that although they are IACP members, they don't feel, at least with what they were explaining to me, that they didn't feel like they got the full experience, that they didn't always feel like they had the same voice as the members that were in the United States and even some, you know, I, I feel like they they feel like even Canada has a bigger a bigger voice within the organization that this ocean that separates really was not letting them feel like they were full members of the organization. And so just this year, I think it's maybe two, three months ago now, we have started a EU committee and we have a group of really hardworking members from all over Europe that are working to spread and grow the IECP in that region. Mm. Um, and I would love to see that happen as well in Australia. I mean, just in the last, what, three years, the membership numbers there have skyrocketed. Uh, you're welcome. So I, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So as I think, I think having these small committees and get it going is that if, you know, part of the reason the EU committee got off the ground is because, ooh, they just kept, come on, let's do this, come on, let's do this. And they just kept going Mm. and they proved similar to me getting on the board as they proved like no we're hard workers we're volunteers we want to do this we believe in this organization and we think the rest of europe should too yeah um yep totally agree there's a meme that people send out when they listen to our podcast where it's somebody sitting next to a poster full of people enjoying a party together and you know (laughs) listening to you describe the interaction between people from you know other countries in the world it's basically like there's a party happening and you're enjoying it on the phone. So it's not the same experience. You don't have that connection and you don't have that fellowship of people working together and being in the same room together. And I mean, even looking at into the crystal ball of the future, 
having conferences in different parts of the world, you know, having an Australian conference, having a European conference. I mean, that would be, it might be a pipe dream now, but it would be a wonderful experience to actually have. You know, like you're saying yourself, you're getting up to 500 people at this conference. That's going to be enormous. I mean, I think last year, the one in in Florida, there was around 400-ish people there, you know, and I mean, the people that Pat and I have sold this conference to and over here in Australia, you They've asked those questions. How many people go there? What can I expect? And I said, look, you're going to have a great time. The networking potential is enormous. You're going to meet some absolutely instrumental people. You're going to meet some seasoned professionals. You're going to meet some um, people who are just as new as you are to the industry. But you're going to really find out some amazing stuff from these people, who they are, what their backgrounds are, what they're doing, who they're training with, what they're learning. Uh, And I said, and that combined with the guest speakers and the lineup they've got this year is going to be an amazing experience. But it'd be nice to spread that right throughout the world. Right. And and so that's obviously that's one of the big things that the EU committee wants to do at some point. Mm. And one of the things we as a board try to remind everybody is that it's, you know, it's which came first, the chicken or the egg. Is it would being putting a conference in an area get us more people or do we get more people and then we can financially justify a conference in that area? So it's, that's where it's great to see the growth that we've been seeing in Australia again. Thank you. And um, <laughs> in Europe is that, you know, the more numbers we have, the more justification we can have for that. Like Hutto, Texas. Gosh, the one in Hutto, Texas, what was that, five, six years ago now? I, I think maybe 150 people. Maybe. Wow. That was just four or five years ago. Mm, that's exponential growth. Yeah, that's huge growth. Yes. I sort of say to people in Australia when they talk about the ISCP, and, and, and I really firmly believe this, is that as an organization, they're beholden to their members. So don't complain to me about what the ISCP is or is not doing unless you're a member. And so I think that if people want more representation in regional areas or whatever, you, I, I firmly believe they must first join. You can't demand something of somebody you're not a part of. You know what I mean? And so the ISCP, from my opinion, this is just my opinion, but I think that if people want to be represented by the ISCP and really, you know, make I stand for international, they first need to join and then they can say, Hey, okay, well now there is, you know, however many of us in Australia that have joined, there's a thousand members or whatever at that point. Now we can start demanding some, some input or something like that. But until then, I just feel like you're, you're complaining about a problem that isn't, you're not a part of unless you join the, join the organization, then you can start demanding some, some feedback from them. Right. And then, and getting involved, right. Is yeah. that it's being, I mean, it's so easy to, to just be a member, but to, to volunteer for a committee, which isn't always easy. <laughs> like it's, mm. you know, the committees you can think, okay, we're probably going to have one or two things a month. And then from what I'm seeing from, cause I'm sitting in the back sort of watching the legislative committee and the amount of stuff that they're inundated with. And then on top of that, they're coming up with their own ideas. So it's just one of those things that it's, we need volunteers is that the organization, you know, the board can't do it all. The committee people can't do it all is, um, you know, I'd love to see someone from outside of North America on the board, you know, and I don't feel like I counted, like I was just an American (laughs) (laughs) overseas. So it's, it's one of those things where, um, I'd love to have more of a feel of it being, international like mm-hmm. yes we have international members but i'd like um the the more that we can get involved with the ins and outs of the organization um even looking at and i'm going to speak a little bit outside my wheelhouse here is that like even the service dog stuff mm-hmm. is that 
you know, what service dog laws and everything here in the United States, those don't match what's going on in Canada. They don't match what's going on in other areas of the world. So being able to have people from all over the world contributing to what these different committees are doing to me is really important. Yeah, definitely. And and I think being on that legislative committee, it, it is a little bit overwhelming at times, certainly because there's just so much fucking legislation everywhere. Like to stay ahead of that, there's 10 people on a committee mm. and I'm trying to stay ahead of what's happening in Australia just to even be aware of what's going on is hard enough with, you know, and we've only got seven states. We're not dealing in 50 different states. And then you got, you yeah. know, uh, laws coming in per county and that kind of stuff. It, it's somewhat overwhelming. And we do need everybody to be involved in that. And you just, there's just no way that a committee of 10 people could stay across of every law that affects dog ownership or training around the world is impossible. You do need that feedback. No, mm. Not a chance. And, that, and that's where it's, you know, is having the membership also work to better the organization mm. is that it's, it's, to me, being a member has never been about just paying my dues and getting my little membership plaque for my wall. Is yeah. It was always, okay, and I sat back and I watched for a while. I didn't just become a member and jump in there and ask to be part of things. But it was once I felt like I could contribute is I wanted to give back. Yeah, it sounds kind of corny, but if you want the organization to to work for you, you have to be prepared to do some work for it. I, I firmly believe that. Yeah, well, that, that's a good point because, I mean, there's there's a lot of – not so much younger people, but newer people to the industry who are saying, you know, how do I get my in in the industry? Like, what do I have to do? And good advice that's been shepherded around since I was involved in it was make yourself useful. You know, if you need to go in and volunteer, go and volunteer. Stop waiting for the world to throw opportunities at your doorstep when people don't even know who you are or what you're capable of. Show the world right. who you are. Go and turn up. Go and sweep some floors. Go and bring some coffee for some for a while. You know, show people that you're a reliable person. That you actually are. You you make it there on time. That you do pay attention. That your ideas and suggestions are as valid as everybody else's. And then people suddenly turn around and say, "Who's that person?" You know, their their contribution is fantastic. Why don't we speak to them more? Or why don't we involve them or put them in in an officer position or something like that? Then you get your chance. And I. Th- I, I see that lacking a little bit. That used to be the way a lot more where people would really apprentice themselves to getting into these positions, but now people think that complaining online is the way to get involved. It's not. The way to get involved is, as, as I suggested before, if you do that, people will start looking at you and they'll start thinking, how could I not do this without you? Right. Well, and I think too is that it lets you know just how hard work it is. Like if you're in there volunteering on one level, you can sort of see just how difficult now hardworking other areas of the organization or business are. So you know whether or not you actually want to do it. Mm, yeah, it's, that's a good um, point. Is it, I mean, even for instance, like I was on the board for four years, the vice president for three of those, and Tyler and I work closely together, but it's still, I'm six months into being president and I'm just like, oh my God, like I had no... <laughs> <laughs> sort of naive in the fact that I was on the board for four years and vice president. And then I'm just like, wow, every day, huh? <laughs> <laughs> there's a new, there's a new thing that I have to do. Hey, so yeah. w- one thing I just want to sort of, we are pushing ICP, but can you tell us for people who don't know, like what is the role of the ICP? Why should someone join? If someone who is just listening to this for the first time, hearing those, the, hearing that acronym for the first time, w- what are we talking about? So the International Association, which it's actually pretty exciting this year, is our 20th anniversary. Um, It was founded back in 1999 by a small group of 
canine professionals that wanted an organization that spoke to them, that could speak for them and be more open-minded, be more inclusive, fight for education, right? As they wanted to set the standard, which is, I think, our education and um, certification committee have done a remarkable job setting the standard for certification is they they didn't want to just be become a member and that's it is we wanted to educate people is here's all the different ways for using tools here which is why the conference is so important to us mm-hmm. but we wanted to be a voice for the industry and that you know these people 20 years ago saw the and they saw the beginning of the shift they they saw the push of a one way of thinking of how we should be training dogs and they were already starting to see how that was affecting our lives with dogs. And so, you know, this organization was meant to be one that wasn't just you either do it our way or you're not part of us is it was, we want you, we want you to be able to come to conference and speak to people or even just on the Facebook groups, be able to throw information out there and you're going to get 20 different ways of handling a situation because mm-hmm. there's, you know, not everybody in the IACP is an e-collar user. Not everyone uses prong collars. Some people use, you know, slip leads, the transitional lead, halty. Like we're saying there's a reason for all these tools and that I'm a firm believer. And it's one of the reasons why I gravitated towards the IACP so long ago was that you're never done learning. Mm-hmm is that whether you've been in this industry for five years, 20 years, or 40 years, there's always going to be a dog or a person who can teach you one more thing. Yep. And that to me, you, you, you know, <laughs> the minute you think you know everything, there is going to be a dog out there that's going to humble you. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. 100%. Mm. So, you know, with this organization between our legislative committee, the EU committee, service dog, therapy dog. We have all these committees that are hardworking for people who feel passionate about certain areas of the industry that are not just fighting to push things for the better, but they're also helping educate newer members, right? Is that I want it to be that if someone just is even thinking about becoming a dog trainer and they come to the conference or they join as an affiliate, because we do have an affiliate level membership that is, they can be your clients, right? Is they don't have to be dog professionals. They, mm. they don't vote, but they get to be, they're throwing their support behind the organization, right? Is they're saying, this is an organization that, that speaks for the life I want to have with my dog. So is it, it's supposed to be the voice of many and not just, this is one way of doing it. And that's what we want is Spe- I guess the long and short of it. Speaking on the education points that you've been making, there was a, a clip I saw online a while ago, a couple of weeks back, I think. This pertains to education itself. But there was a guy who was confronted with, obviously, a lady and her mother where they were claiming that she had a service dog. And he was he was holding his ground and basically he had information on what a service dog was and wasn't. And he kept saying to her, this is not a qualified service dogs in the eyes of the law. And I actually have the law here in front of me. And she kept insisting and they were shouting him down and yelling at him. And anybody who wasn't aware and didn't have education would have said to themselves, well, I'm not going to get involved in this situation. I just better let them let them through. However, he did have the legislation there. He was educated and he was able to um, politely diffuse the situation and point out to the 
person that was making these claims that she was actually mistaken and that her dog wasn't in the eyes of the law a service dog. And I think that's the important thing about education is that there's a lot of people out there claiming that they are working within the law who are not, including people who are using certain types of tools. So if people do come on board with various forms of education, they can find out that they do actually know what the law pertains to. Because there are certain tools here that people are saying, oh, they're not legal in this state, where I've said to them, no, no, that's actually not true. I said, there are welfare bodies who don't encourage the use of them and who frown on them, but there is no legislative issue with using that tool. And I said, if you cross the border, there is, like there is actually written legislation to say that. So this is why education is very important for us. And this is why it's great to have bodies that are offering education to its members and even people who aren't members to say to them, we're fighting for the broader community. We're giving you access to all the tools and knowledge that you'll be able to look at our website or come into our doctrine and see what you can actually lawfully do in your state or in your country. And we need that. We actually need to know where where we stand with things because people will just make it up as they go. Right. And if they're communicating with whether it be clients or other trainers who themselves aren't educated on it either, then that's how that stuff spreads, yeah. right? Is yep. They walk into a room and this person stands there so confident that they know what they're talking about. People believe them. Mm. And then they go and spread it too as if it were law or that it is the correct way of doing something. So it, it there is power in education. And so I think that's a big part, and it always has been a big part of this organization, is educating our members, encouraging our members to educate their clients because there is power in that. Yeah. Well, just to go back on that, there was a training center that I was involved in uh, for many, many years. And we started to find a problem with our junior trainers where the information they were giving to clients was dilute from what we believe was the law or the doctrine of the training center. And one of the reasons we found that to be a problem is that we were allowing that dilution to occur by not having the senior trainers directly involved in the training of the junior trainers. So the way we changed that was we started to make it that junior trainers had to do shadow programs with the most senior trainers in the organization. And only that way were we all drinking water from the same well, because it was becoming so dilute that the customers were saying to us, this is ridiculous. Like if I train with you, I'll get this type of service. Whereas I train with this person, I'll get this type of service. And the problem for us was that it was all the same organization preaching the same thing, but it was just the spread of information had become quite vast. It only took that one small thing, that one small change, and then everybody was on board with, and it wasn't that we were robbing people of individual thinking because we used to have a discussion amongst us, which we, which we would agree that there was some individualism needed. However, we still needed to have a system that was supportive of itself, that when people saw it, they didn't say it's so different from trainer to trainer, which would annoy people. And it annoys people in legislation as well when they can't get a clear answer on what it's supposed to be. Yeah, is that and that is. And you do see that a lot with a lot of different businesses that grow so fast and have so many trainers is that it should be across the board regardless of which trainer you went to. And of course there's going to be different skill sets, but is being able to know that if a client walks in that door they're getting quality training because the education is there regardless of which trainer that they go to. Mhm. Hey, so I want to talk about conference, but uh, let me just, this is how I explain what the IACP is to people. And 
I may as well give 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 a run at that in front of the president so I can be corrected or told <laughs> I'm okay. So I say, look, it's an industry group focused on education of its members, of the public, and of legislators. And in doing so, we therefore are across the full balance of, of training. We, we're not influenced by a tool or technique. It's education and, and the full gamut. But in doing so, then attempt to protect the use of particular tools because we can educate people on how and why they are effective. Do you think that's an, a fair representation? Because it, it's not as though the IACP is the e-collar organization or the, the organization that is there to protect the use of the e-collar. That's kind of, in my opinion, like a part of it, but it's not the reason for the organization to exist. It's something within the, the, the scope of capability, but under the banner of education. Am I correct? Yes, you are very correct. Cool. So I should continue explaining it. <laughs> you, you, yes, you, you have my, my stamp of approval on that. <laughs> and, and the reason I want to say that sort of out loud here is, you know, we've got a few listeners these days and most of them are not in Australia, actually. And a lot of our listeners are across dog sports or are police military type people because we talk about a fair bit of that kind of stuff. And, and I think that particularly in the U.S., the dog sport community should be getting more involved with the IACP. And it's not going to be a direct route to them protecting the use of the tools or the techniques that the dog sport people want to use. It's that it's not a direct route to that. It's an indirect route in that they're going to continue to support your use of that tool and educate other people why you might be doing it. And I think that, and I've spoken with other members of the IACP about this, some of the dog sport community are the best people to have as demonstrators of their dog's capability. Mm. Even if they're not professional trainers, some of them are, and especially, you know, to tie this back into, as we are talking about Jerry before, PSA in, in the States and now American Schutzen over there, there is no pretending to be anything that you're not. You're allowed to use your training tools. You're allowed to wear your e-collar or prong collar to the edge of the field, just the same way you're allowed to wear your treat pouch or carry your ball. So it's the full gamut. We're showing, hey, this is how we really train our dog. We're not denying how we do it. And then when we enter the field, we're showing the training works because we enter without the ball, without the reinforcers, yep. and we enter without the tools. So right. I feel like some of those people, because I know they listen, and they're the ones that I really want to push to come into it. Like it's not that this is the pet dog group or it's not that this is the anything group other than dog trainers who use the full spectrum of training and are therefore interested in, first of all, continuing to be able to do that. And through doing that, perhaps educate other people so that they don't look at you and go, hey, what you're doing is wrong. They look at what you're doing and go, hey, good work. I see your results. Right. And and I completely agree with that. Is And it's, I'll take it one step further and say that it's for canine professionals in general, is that I think the more we can get that are outside of just the pet dog trainers, right? So your groomers, your veterinarians, to let them see who we are and the education that we have behind it, that you know, if you send your client in to grooming and they go in and they have, let's say a prong collar on is you don't want that groomer then to chastise them for that tool choice. So the more within the canine industry that we can educate the better, but you know, there's no doubting that, or there's no denying that people within the sport dog world aren't out there working their dogs. Mm -hmm. And so you know, is whether they are a trainer or just a pet owner that's dedicated to doing what their their dog was bred to do and that they love it, right? Those dogs, you can't tell me that those dogs out on that field aren't having the time of their life. Yeah. So to be able to have them come in and one, they're also bringing in another perspective. 
Mm. to dog training and to the organization. So which the more well-rounded the organization can be, the better. And that no, you don't have to be a pet dog trainer. You don't have to be an e-collar trainer. You don't have to use a transitional lead. You don't have to use a halty. You just have to be doing what's best for the dog. You have to be- We talk about a lot here. We have this constant saying that it's actually our PSA club, Meglands Club, we actually have this on our t- on our T-shirts. It's our proprietary saying that we're still waiting for someone to steal. I'm sure it will. Uh, it's cool story, show me a dog, right? And and I feel like the more of the, especially when you want to talk about the full gamut of training, the dog sport people are the people who are showing the dog, mm-hmm. right? Here we are. Yeah. We can be your demonstration because a lot of the time, say, with pet dog people, you can make a great video of a dog that you've turned around that was aggressive or whatever, but – with the dog sports, it's my own dog. Look, like, like here he is. I've had him. There should be no problems. We're not overcoming things. Like, I've had this dog since he's eight weeks old or, you know, whatever. Here I am on the field showing what is totally capable. And, again, because I am I, – I'm not – I'm unashamedly pushing it to the community who I know, listen, is that by joining the ISCP, then, you know, when – when the ICP then review their membership and go, oh, you know, like 80% of our members are competitors in something, then at that point we could probably say to the ICP, hey, how about you sponsor this? And now and now there's events that are being brought to you by the ICP and it's like the, the ICP's name is attached to a bunch of people hitting the field and showing impressive shit with their dog. Yeah. But the path to that is becoming a fucking member. <laughs> you first have to join and then you can say, hey, here's a big number of us seeing this. Like how about you support us in this? way. And I I believe that that support would likely come. Mm. Right. Well, and that is it, is that we do get a lot of people that talk about the IECP that will follow the IECP, but then when push comes to shove, don't join. Yeah. And, and it's a shame because it's, it's, it's people that could continue to push and better this organization. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a lot of money to put up for a lot of give back as well. And on the back of what both yourself and Pat were talking about before involving Jerry's input, one of the things that I did like that Tyler was doing, which was assisted heavily by legislative committees within the IACP, was when people were coming up with pseudoscience evidence to not support uses of equipment, Tyler would quickly swing into gear and he would produce actual science to support the equipment, which was suppressed amongst the population and say, well, you know, this is the actual reality of it. You wanted to put your case forward, we'll put our case forward. And I love that that the committee and Tyler were doing those type of things because it was showing people, okay, well, there is actually scientific research that have been done in the past on these types of tools and equipment that we are continuing to showcase or not show, not so much showcase, but we're putting our own support behind them. And it's important for our members out there to be able to have access to that information as well. So it's great for people to have a library of information where they can say, okay, well, here is the actual research and here is a list of referees that you can look at yourself, including all the information that they've provided from past research. Right. Well, and, and I think Tyler also did a really good job of showing when they would, when certain studies, and I'm air quoting as if you can see it, (laughs) pointing out where they cherry picked, that they put out in front of people only what they wanted people, knowing that people aren't going to, the average person isn't going to go and read the full research or the full study that was done. So they is, he did a very good job of showing, you know, where they cherry picked what fit their agenda Mm -hmm. and, and calling them out on it is educating, you know, educating as is the role of the ISCP. Mm. Hey, so conference this year, 
Tell us a little bit about what's happening there. We're super excited. Yeah, very excited. This one is in Colorado Springs mm-hmm. in September. It, um, we've been doing September now for gosh, three or four, maybe five years now. I can't remember. It starts to bleed together. I personally feel that this conference, um, one, the site is amazing. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And we, I feel like this year, this conference has just the largest range of speakers and presentations from, you know, veterinarians speaking on cannabis oil and its benefits with dogs to, you know, we have Mark Hines from Kong is presenting, which I personally am thrilled about this. Mark hasn't presented at a conference uh, in at least seven years. You know, we have the gamut from your trick dog trainers to we have someone doing herding, which we actually have space at this conference site to have someone come in and teach about herding. We have sure. Barbara DeGroote is speaking on scent detection and I believe maybe a little bit of tracking. So there's one of our white paper contest winners is speaking on legislation and um, how we can better help our clients if they're if our clients get into you know a sticky situation with their dogs. Bertie Oshidi is one of our white paper speakers. So she'll be there this year. Is it's it's just such a and we touched on it a little bit earlier. Is that I know that there's a couple of I think we have a couple of speakers that really surprise some within our membership as to being outside of the box. Mm-hmm. But I'm actually really excited of, about that, especially since we're gonna oh, be right. there in a in a capacity as the podcast, interviewing a lot of people. Mm. I'm super excited to interview some of those people and get their take on not just what they do, but their how they uh, fit into that that picture of of speaking at the IACP in front of people who ne- who who don't necessarily agree with everything that they're saying and how cool it is that we can all be in that one room yep. and 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 listen to to you know take from them what is appropriate. Right. Well, and I would love to know like a before and after. Like, what were their perceptions coming into this, and what was their perception of us afterwards? Mm-hmm. Right. Is that I mean, we'll have anywhere we could have eighty dogs at this conference all sitting in a room, well-behaved, you know, not barking and being snarky with each other. And, you know, some of them are going to have tools on that maybe some of these speakers don't agree with. But if there's no denying that the dog is happy and balanced, you know, it's it's that sort of thing that can start to open people's minds. So yeah. um, I'm, I'm really excited about this year's lineup. Um, and again, the location is fantastic. Um, and we just, we keep, getting bigger and better every year and really pushing. Um, I love, so this is for people who haven't been before. One of the nice things that we do at the conference is there's a survey afterwards and we actually ask our attendees for speaker ideas. Mm -hmm. Like who do you want to see be a speaker? And you know, that, that list is compiled. And from there we start reaching out and finding a wide range of speakers covering all different areas within the organization or within the um, industry. Yeah, I think it's awesome. I, mm. I, I'm excited to see, like, likewise. T- well, tell me where where else in the industry you're going to get Ian Dunbar speaking at the same place as Larry Crone, right? <laughs> right. Like, that's fantastic. That, and Roger Brandes. Yeah, but I mean, to like, I know two, yeah, different not doctrines. polar opposites, but yeah. guy like a guy who's anti e collar or, or yep. has you know it's said to be force free, and so- then another that who's that's his that's his shtick is using the e collar, and yep. both good dudes, and I'm interested to to you know talk to both. Mm. Uh, and, and maybe we could, you know what we could do? Don't tell anyone. We'll get drunk with them. Well, don't tell anyone 10,000 people that are listening, but we could try and get them to have a conversation on our show. That would be awesome. That'd be, that would be wonderful. We'd tell them both just to meet at this particular place at yeah. 3 o'clock and we'll both be there. Huzzah. 
individual interview. <laughs> yeah. We'll do yeah. shots and then do a podcast. Yeah. I'm down for that. Yeah. <laughs> hey, um, we better wrap it up. Hey, Melanie, thank you so much for coming on. Tell us how do people find you if they want to get in touch, if they want to talk about dog training, if they're in the local area, and also how do people join the IACP and come to conference? Okay, so me personally is my business website is kindredcaninesolutions.com. All my information is on there. As far as the International Association of Canine Professionals, it is canineprofessionals.com. It has all the information, the benefits of being a member, the different levels of membership, our education portals on there, our certification is on there, and there is a link to the conference site as well to where you can you can sign up right through the website interactives for looking at who the speakers are, the bio on the speakers, what they're going to be talking about. You can check out a list of our sponsors that are going to be there as well. We have a huge sponsor exhibit. And this year we sold out early. We have a waiting list for people wanting booths at this year's conference. So yeah, it's all there right there on the website. Awesome. That's fantastic. Hey, thanks for making the time to come on for us. But from from me, thank you very much for what you do for the ISCP. That role as president, it it takes a lot of your time, I'll bet. And Mm. I I see a little bit of that now, having been in that legislative committee and seeing what happens behind the scenes and the, the amount of input. I can imagine I see what work you do, the, what work we create for you. And then I see, uh, I imagine that there's multiple other committees that are doing exactly the same. So I think for someone in your position who's running your own business and doing your own thing and then also taking on that role, unpaid, massive pain in the ass and, and really the you'll never get back as much as you're putting in. That, that's impossible for the, the level that you're putting in. So so for me and many other members, thank you very much for the, the work that you do. I think there's a good saying that sums it all up, which is heavy is the head that wears the crown. Well, thank you. It's actually, it's my privilege. Mm. What a biblical quote you're throwing in there. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Hey, Melanie, thanks again. I'm going to wrap it up. So that's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe. Doing that helps us get the word out to more and more people. Even if you can, just tell a friend. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is via Patreon. We are, what is it, three bucks a month on Patreon. gets you access to an extra episode per month, and then there's some more tiers from there. You could just give, I don't know, $1,000 a month if you were that kind of person. We're still working towards a whisper yeah, room. If, if it, or you could just buy us a whisper room. If, if anybody wanted, actually If you're a sugar mama or a sugar, sugar daddy yeah. and, you know, you're thinking, If anyone's hey, got one lying around hey. or great, what are they worth, 20-odd K? If oh, a, more. More? Okay, yeah. well. We'll, we won't hold our breath. Um, <laughs> and if you want to get in contact with us, uh, you can do that via email. We are info at the canineparadigm.com. And as we've just been discussed with Melanie, we will be at the IACP conference uh, this year. We are there not just as, as Pat and Glenn. We're there as the canine paradigm. We'll yep. be doing a bunch of interviews. And um, if there's anybody that's going to be there that's particularly interesting, reach out. But we'll be in- interviewing as many people as we can. Be great. That's it. Glenn, yep. music. Music.